Today's teaching text comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During a train trip from Chicago to Texas in the late 1940s, Aidan Wilson Tozer began writing. He continued all through the night, sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit. And when the train pulled into its destination hours later, Tozer had finished the rough draft of a book called The Pursuit of God. It went on to become a classic of Christian devotional writing. It's on tons of best of lists. When I left for college uh, my freshman year, my parents moved out of the only house I could remember having ever lived in. We had lived in one when I was an infant, uh, but I had no memory of it. So I left for school and this house that had all my memories of growing up, uh, and then they moved into this, this rental place uh, in this interim time before they moved into the place they, they were headed. But uh, So I left for school, and I came back for a break, and they lived somewhere new. And it was very weird. It was like a weird experience of coming home but not quite feeling at home. And I remember I was on... Uh, on a break there, and it was it was one night, and I just couldn't sleep. I was I was in this time of transition. I was spiritually wrestling in my life. Who who was I going to be? And I walked over to the shelf. Sometimes reading will help me fall asleep. I walked over to the shelf in this room, this strange room, and I picked up a book. And the book was The Pursuit of God. And I was hoping it would help me fall asleep. But I remember halfway through the first chapter, I sat up in bed and it was like my entire attention had been captured. And I remember reading the words, this is halfway through the first chapter of the, of the book. And Tozer says, you and I are in little, our sins accepted what God is in large. Being made in his image, we have within us the capacity to know him. In our sins, we lack only the power. The moment the Spirit has quickened us to life in regeneration, our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. That is the heavenly birth without which we cannot see the kingdom of God. It is, however, not an end, but an inception. 
For now begins the glorious pursuit, the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. That is where we begin, I say, but where we stop, no one has yet discovered. For there is in the awful and mysterious depths of the triune God neither limit nor end. To have found God and still pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. I had never read anything like that. And I picked a book to help me sleep and it was not working. I knew whatever he was describing, I wanted to taste that. I wanted to experience that. I wanted to know that. And I knew that I didn't have that at that point in my life. And so instead of of helping me sleep, this book was sort of shaking me awake. I've come back to this book, it's a short book written in one train ride, but I've come back to it many times over the last 20 years. And and I think one of the summaries, apart from what I just read, which is one of the thesis sort of statements of the book, one a, a good summary is in one little sentence where Tozer says, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. And this book and, and Tozer's words were, were waking me up to my own complacency. And, and that's true of our lives. We can be lulled to sleep. We can drift towards apathy. We can be seduced by our own comforts. And, and what happens is often our concerns become more and more narrowed, more and more centered around the self. And, and we need a wake-up call. There are times in our life where we need a loving intervention from someone who says, I love you, I know you well enough to say this, I'm not sure that you're seeing it, but, 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 but I want to tell you the truth. We need people in our lives that are able to do that. We need God uh, to be able to do that in our lives. Laodicea. <laughs> The last of these seven churches that we've been looking at in Lent, uh, the the last of these letters in Revelation is getting a wake-up call. They're getting an intervention, a loving intervention from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, They receive uh, one of the the sharpest set of rebukes in all of the seven letters. They're they're called out for being lukewarm, uh, for being, you know, that's maybe one of the most famous passages in, in, in Revelation, the lukewarm passage. They're called out for being complacent, for being self-sufficient, that they're experiencing self-deception, that they have a vision of themselves when reality is, is exactly the opposite. So really harsh rebukes to the church at Laodicea, but then turn around and they get some of the most astonishing, glorious, dazzling promises of all the promises to the churches. Uh, Christ says to them, I will come in. I'm knocking on the door. I will come in. I will eat with you. You will share in my victory so much so that you will sit on the throne with me. And that's where it's like gets a little bit almost like too much. Wait a minute. We're going to sit on the throne with you. I'm not sure. I, I, I like the sound of that, but harsh rebuke, really intense, loving intervention, and then dazzling, staggering promises. These are the words that come to Laodicea. And I I don't want to play spoiler here, but there's some really good historical evidence that Laodicea listened that they heeded the, this wake-up call, that they, that they changed, that they became a thriving church. As a matter of fact, there's, there's evidence that one of the disciples that trained under John, who, who wrote uh, this, this letter, whose name was Polycarp, went on to become one of the leaders in, in this, this church in Laodicea. So to me, it's really important to hear that, to remember amidst these truly challenging words to all of these seven churches that change is possible. 
Church, I want you to hear that. Let it, let it ring through your, your heart and mind. Let it sort of uh, wash over your soul this morning. Change is possible. We're on our way to celebrate the cross and the resurrection of Jesus in Holy Week, something obviously we do more than just one week a year, but the resurrection, the grace of God and the gospel means change is possible. The way things have been isn't the way they have to continue being. If you're burdened by a pattern of thought or behavior that you cannot seem to break free from, that doesn't have to be the truth about you forever. It doesn't even have to be the truth about you anymore. Today could be a day where change comes. Change is possible. If you're weighed down by grief or or stress or anxiety or depression and you think it's never going to be different. No, the gospel says change is possible. If you're stuck in apathy and struggling to find motivation and keep the fire going in your life, change is possible. If you feel alone and unloved and unseen and you're sick of this isolation, change is possible. If it feels like the problems of our world are, are, are too much and they're never going to be different. I was heartbroken to read again this week of another shooting in, in Boulder, Colorado. And it's just like, how long, oh Lord, our hearts cry out. And, and, it's, and that's right. We should lament. We should cry out. We should beat our chest and shake our hands and say, how long, oh Lord? But we also have to keep in mind the, the promise and the possibility that change is real. Change is possible. It doesn't always have to be this way. If we're wrestling with with unforgiveness it's poisoning our spirit or bitterness or jealousy change is possible those burdens can be lifted new life can flood in if you want to love more than you seem to be able to change is possible but we we may need to hear a loving wake-up call And that's what Jesus is giving this church. He he, he says, to those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Maybe you'd like to take those, those sections of the scripture out, but Jesus says, those, my friends, my family, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. For a church that's called out for being lukewarm, this is really important. The word earnest here is translated from the Greek word for zealous, the exact opposite of being lukewarm. Jesus is saying, I'm going to share with you some sturdy, loving, surgical words that you have to hear. They're wake-up call words. They're intervention words. And I'm sharing them with you because you're family, because I love you, because I want better things for you. So be zealous in hearing these words and, and reorienting your life around them. Eugene Peterson translates this little section in the message beautifully. He says, the people I love, I call to account. I prod and correct and guide so that they'll live at their best. Up on your feet then, about face, run after God. This is what we're hearing in the words of the church at Laodicea. I want to tell you just a couple of quick things about them that will help some of these words uh, come to life If you remember the earthquake that we mentioned last week that destroyed Philadelphia in in AD 60, well, it destroyed Laodicea as well, massive earthquake. Uh, As we mentioned, Philadelphia received a bailout from the empire to rebuild. They were an important city, and uh, they got money from the empire, from the the Caesars to to rebuild. Um, A city actually just north of Laodicea that that readers of the Bible will be familiar with called Colossae uh, was considered not important enough to rebuild. So they were 
damaged by the earthquake and they received no imperial funds or resources to rebuild. So just a, a little historical note of how these things were, were, were considered. Laodicea, Laodicea was a really important city and they were offered money from the empire to rebuild and they said no thanks. The residents of Laodicea were rich enough to rebuild themselves. They said, we don't need money from the empire. We got this. They were a banking and financial center. They were on several major trade routes, and they had a mint. They made, they made money. They printed money. Um, I don't think they had, they had a printer, but you get it. They, they made money, and they, they had a coin for their own city, and the inscription on the coin said, we did it ourselves. We did it ourselves. Laodicea thought pretty highly of themselves. Uh, apparently, uh, that, that mentality wasn't just in the city at large, but had seeped into the church as well. P- part of the reason for this was they had several successful imports that were highly desired around the empire. One was this black wool uh, from sheep in the area, and they had figured out how to weave it so that it was really glossy and it was highly desirable uh, for, for fashion, for, for the wealthy. This glossy black wool was exported all over the empire from Laodicea. Another export was they had a large medical center in, in, in the city and specifically specialists in ophthalmology and eye care. And they had developed this famous eye salve and uh, it, w- it was purchased and exported all across the empire. It was, it was reported even that in some cases it had helped people who had no sight recover their vision. So they, they printed money, they, they rebuilt on their own, they, they, they exported high fashion, they, they exported you know, uh, medical solutions to problems that were literally helping people see. This city thought well of itself and there were some good reasons to. Some, some digs in modern Laodicea have turned up ruins of a large uh, gladiatorial arena. Um, and it was said that the best of the best gladiators came to fight in Laodicea. So we're talking about like Russell Crowe would have come to Laodicea in, in the movie. He would, have, he would have stopped there. It, it became associated because of this as a military outpost. Actually, it was one of the only places in the empire where Roman soldiers and gladiators were training together on different... Uh, sort of uh, ways of warfare. So um, Roman soldiers were sent there to train. And one of the reasons might have been the wealth of the city, the, um, the, the ability to, to, to support these soldiers. There was a set of Roman laws called Angaria, which was laws that made provision for the soldiers in the empire. Basically what this meant was that Roman soldiers could make demands on ordinary citizens that they couldn't refuse. And Jesus references this a little bit when he says, if a soldier asks you to carry their pack one mile, carry it two. That was something that a Roman soldier could come up to an ordinary citizen on the road and say, I want you to carry my pack for one mile, and they couldn't refuse. Another was they could knock on on the door of your home, and if you opened to a Roman soldier or a group of them, you had to provide a meal for, for these soldiers. And it was something that, um, you know, historically the records of this was sometimes it would be a huge burden on the city to bear this. And Laodicea was apparently able to do it. So for all that Laodicea had, <laughs> They did not have something crucial. They did not have um, good, clean drinking water. There was no local source uh, for clean water, so they had to pump it in. And uh, there, there were two options for them. To the north, there was a city called Hierapolis, uh, which was known then and even now to some degree for the for famous hot springs. They had natural mineral hot springs that were uh, thought to have healing properties, and people would come and sit and bathe in these hot springs. 
The other water option was Colossae uh, to the southeast, and they had wonderful uh, natural cold sp- springs from this uh, glacial mountain runoff. So Hierapolis to the north with the hot springs, Colossae to the south with the natural cold springs. But here's the thing, by the time both of these water sources reached Laodicea, it wasn't hot or cold. It was, you guessed it, lukewarm. So maybe you've heard this, this teaching about Laodicea being lukewarm before and, and basically like, you know, some sort of youth group type message where it's like, God wants you to be hot. He wants you to be passionate and committed and full of love. And if you can't be hot, you need to be cold. You need to totally reject it. Go completely the other way. Like God wants you either to be for him or completely against him. But that's actually not the point of this at all. Um, both the hot water and the cold water were useful. You had the healing, uh, you know, natural mineral properties of the hot springs, and then you had the cold, refreshing, revitalizing cold spring. They were different, but they were useful in different ways. And what's being warned against here is being neither of those. It's basically not being useful. And more than likely, based on the context, it's not being useful because you've become so self-assured that you're ignoring your surroundings. You've become so self-important that you're ignoring the needs of others. You've become obsessed with your own comfort and you've forgotten your neighbor. So it's not saying it's just as Jesus would be just as happy as if you're totally against him, if you're not going to be totally passionate. So both of the ends of the spectrum are useful and in the middle, this lukewarm place is so self-oriented that it's forgotten others. Laodicea was wealthy, was influential, was successful, was desirable, and truly spiritually sick. They needed a wake-up call. The church wasn't so much changing the city as being changed by the city. Uh, They had adopted the same lives as the wider culture they were immersed in. And this has always been a powerful temptation. It's certainly a powerful temptation for us. We take in the messages of our culture until they become our own. It's it's not actually the the, uh, vision of abundant life that Jesus offers us. But on the surface, the way we read it, the way we see it, the way everyone else seems to be living, it's tremendously appealing. Uh, I've been helped over the years so many times by the words of James K.A. Smith on this very idea. You may have heard this, but, but uh, just consider this with me. He says, because our hearts are oriented primarily by desire, by what we love, and because those desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices of the world, the liturgies of our culture that shape our imaginations and how we orient ourselves to the world, embedded in them is a common set of assumptions about the shape of human flourishing, which becomes an implicit telos or goal of our own desires and actions. That is, the visions of the good life embedded in these practices become surreptitiously embedded in us through our participation in the rituals and rhythms of these institutions. Saying for Laodicea, for New York City, the, the, the participation of your, of your life and the rhythms of your wider culture means you're adopting all these different messages about what the good life is. It gets embedded in our hearts. We have to pay attention to it. If we're not paying attention to it, it's absolutely getting a hold, uh, a hold of us. We have all felt the shaping power of our world, of our culture, of our city in these ways. Uh, Smith goes on to say, 
Our identity is shaped by what we ultimately love or what we love as ultimate. What at the end of the day gives us a sense of meaning, purpose, understanding, and orientation to our being in the world. What we desire or love ultimately is is a largely implicit vision of what we hope for, what we think the good life looks like. This vision of the good life shapes all kinds of actions and decisions and habits that we undertake, often without thinking about it. Where does your vision of the good life come from? Our world saying, get all you can. Uh, Be as comfortable as you personally can be. Attract as much attention to your successes as possible. It's about you, your your self-understanding, your your self-expression, your your comfort, and the praise and status you can get from that reality, the life that you can live. And Christ is saying, I have come to give you life and give it to the full, but it's a life of worship, of giving, of moving towards the other, a life of love. Jesus is saying quite counterintuitively at every stage of history, the full life isn't demanding the world revolve around you, but moving out to give yourself away for others. In the name and by the spirit of the God who has done the same. God isn't asking us to do anything that God hasn't been willing to do himself. And as we move into Holy Week, we realize the extent to which God has given himself away, moved out to revolve around us instead of standing static and asking that we revolve around God, even though he would have every right to do so. And he's saying that full life for us is the same thing. It's giving up our rights, dying to ourselves, moving out to revolve around the other, to bring them into this dance that the Trinity is extending to humanity and say, I want you to share in the love we have. I want you to share share in the glory we've enjoyed from before the foundations of the world. Being reminded and called back to this God, this love, is a wake-up call. It's what wakes us up from self-deception. And Laodicea was dealing with self-deception. They said, Christ says to them, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What a thing to have our self-understanding so distorted that we think something about ourselves that's completely different from what reality actually is. And we need a wake-up call. Jesus is saying, you've become lukewarm, which isn't good for anyone. Come back to me. He's saying, you think you're completely self-sufficient. You trumpet, we did it ourselves, but you need to come back to reality, that you're blind to what's actually going on in the world and in your lives and in your hearts. You're famous for your money and your clothes and your eye salve, but I want to give you real lasting treasure. I want to give you a cover for your shame. I want to give you true vision. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has the authority to say this. I am the amen. That's how he introduces himself in this, to this church. I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, the one willing to say reality to you. The one with the the, the power to actually work change, to to say that change is possible and we can participate in it, that Jesus has recovered the authority of this world through his death and resurrection. The authority that was lost in the garden has become Christ and he's offering us a share in that, in that authority to, to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's talking about in this bizarre imagery that we would sit on the throne with God and share in his authority. I absolutely love uh, our city. 
I, I got to enjoy it a, a bit this past weekend with, with Allison. It was a makeup for my 40th uh, birthday uh, trip. We were going to do a little staycation in the city and ha- had to cancel it. And you're right, we've had a year of pandemic and then we got COVID and went into uh, two weeks of total lockdown in, in our in our houses. Each family member kind of got it in, 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 a, in a stagger. And so... To say it was a breath of fresh air to, um, you know, have grandma come and, and watch the kids and us have a couple of days in the city was, was, uh, is a super understatement and walk around and, and go to places we've missed for so long and, um, to even be, we got to go into the MoMA and it was re- you know, like restricted entrance. So like you're able to see the paintings without all the crowds around. It was just, it was, it was truly amazing. We, we, I think New York City has its own list of incredible things that, that rivals Laodicea. Honestly, probably better than Laodicea, let's be honest. But I can't get my full vision of the good life just from the culture of New York City. I have to receive it from Christ. The soil isn't rich enough to grow the type of life that I'm longing for just in our culture alone. I have to have the words of Jesus. And I also know that God, as much as I love New York, God loves New York City even more than me. So his heart to allow me to join in his kingdom and you to join in his kingdom and our community to join in his kingdom coming here on earth as it is in heaven, a kingdom of love and mercy and truth and justice coming in this place that... that, God wants that more than I could ever even fathom, than I could ever even name. I think about the type of changes our church is, is most after, the way we measure success. I've been working with some new members who are coming into our church and just sharing with them our, our, our core foundational beliefs and practices as a church. We're longing for people to go from death to life. Spiritual life would take hold in a new way. They'd be filled with the Spirit. They'd believe the gospel. That people would go from shame to acceptance. That that unbearable, heavy burden of shame would be lifted from people and the affirmation and love of God would pour into their life and fill them with joy. That we would go from a self-orientation where we're asking the world to revolve around us to an other's orientation where love defines our existence in a communal way, we wouldn't just be consumers saying, what can we purchase or what can the church do for us or what can my city give to me? But we'd be pushing out into this shared mission together, linking arms saying, we're going to give until it hurts to see the real issues of our city dealt with and, and, and confronted. And all of it held together with, with a shift from striving to abiding. We don't do this on our own willpower or even just on the fumes of our own inspiration. We do this through abiding an intimate, deep connection with Christ on a daily basis filled with the Holy Spirit. These are the types of shift Jesus wants us to share in in our city. They show up in personal relationships, being healed, renewed, revitalized. It shows up in communal acts of love, standing with those who are hurting, uh, standing with those who, 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 who need uh, us to link arms with them. This, this Thursday is just one example. At 2 p.m., our friends at Pray March Act are, are hosting a time of prayer and lament. It's going to be on Facebook Live. Uh, you can get the information uh, uh, for it on our, on our website, but it's a time for us as as a whole church to stand with our with our Asian and Asian American neighbors against this uptick in violence and racism that we've been experiencing. It's a time for unity, a time for intercession, right? This is the type of thing Christ wants us to be involved in. It, it, it takes place in our in our personal lives, in our personal relationships, but also in communal expressions of love. It, it shows up in freedom. 
freedom, church, when we break free, for, free from patterns of thought and behavior that have defined us for, for a long time. It shows up in caring deeply about the things that Jesus cares about. It shows up when we join in what Tozer described. The glorious pursuit, the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. This is about so much more than just listening to a worship playlist. This is, this is uh, he says, this is where we begin, I say, but where we stop, no one has yet discovered. For there is in the awful and mysterious depths of the triune God neither limit nor end. We raise our hands in worship and we lower them in service and love. And for all that and more... God is willing to confront us when we have settled for something less. So he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at what the invitation is here, friends. That Christ would come in and share a meal with us, this this deep sign of, of, of acceptance and friendship. You remember how much trouble Jesus got in for who he ate with? It's a deep sign of acceptance and friendship to share this meal and remember the Angaria, the rules for the Roman soldiers. And so a knock on the door wasn't always good news in Laodicea. <laughs> you know, it, it might mean that you have to, to let some soldiers in and scramble to provide a meal for them. But this knock on the door is, is something uh, you know, quite different. Maybe that knock is not good news. This knock is the very best news. Jesus has provided a meal for us, right? The meal we come to every week is his life given away for us. That's the feast of love that we share in now and that, that we're you know, going to share in in an ongoing party in the age to come. He's given himself fully to share this feast with us. And for that reason, he has the authority to say, let go of your apathy. Let go of your complacency. Stop being lukewarm. Let go of this lie of self-sufficiency, all these illusions of control that you're white knuckling. Come awake to how you have lived in self-deception. Receive my vision of you so that you can live in a new way. Because you are being invited to a feast with Christ that will not end. It's easy to love Laodiceas. Our our world loves them. There's power, there's wealth, there's status, there's control, there's military might. And Jesus comes into town on a borrowed donkey, offering us something else, something better, something that is actually life. As we begin Holy Week and we look up to the horizon and see Jesus coming into town on this borrowed donkey, let us be zealous to hear his words, to turn to him, because he is giving us life and life to the full. I want to give you this last installment of the letters uh, of the letter that our, our leaders have been working on during Lent, seeking to discern what's the Spirit saying to us? What might uh, God want to whisper to, to our church in Brooklyn in these days? And the disclaimer we've said each week, we're not writing scripture here. We're trying to listen for the Spirit and discern best we can the specific words He might say to us. So uh, let's hear, hear these words as we close. 
to the church in Brooklyn. Let me share with you a true vision. In the end, there is little worse than a Christian who has settled for the lukewarm place. They become miserable. They miss the joy of heaven and the good things of earth. Do not get stuck in the middle. Do not become comfortable with the sound of your own complaining. Those who are rich and have enough often become very particular about their wants. Gratitude drains away in favor of a string of disappointments as luxury always demands the newest and the best. Look up from curating your own desires and see the needs of your neighbor. Do not let your wealth sing you a song of false control or of inflated status. I do not look at the outward appearance, but at the heart. Do not let your, your generosity live in the top layer froth. Get down into the needs of your city and give until you hit the quick. Give until your life must change. Your lifestyle must change. Join me in the joy of giving away your life, for there you will find it. A meal of self-sufficiency is scant and lacking. It looks beautiful on the plate or in a well-lit photograph, but it doesn't satisfy. I am inviting you to a feast, a feast of love, a meal of death and resurrection, a chance to join me in the life that will not end. Share in this feast with me. Share in my victory. Share in offering my love. I am knocking at the door. Today, if you hear my voice, open up, let me in. I am here for you. Amen. Heavenly Father, help us to hear the words of your Spirit as much as they are a wake-up call and challenging. They are also the way to life. Embrace us, God. May we embrace you in return. Fill us, Lord, with the fruit of your life, the fruit of your kingdom. Help us to repent and live and live and live. In Jesus' name, amen.